I mean, we look at Amazon, really, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they have aspirations of two dozen dreamy businesses, all that are multi-billion dollar market value. We're just getting started. It's still exactly. day one. You know, don't worry about us. We're $1.5 trillion company. No, it's okay. $1.5 trillion is not cool. You know what's cool? $100 trillion. Welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We are coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in business, technology, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And every week on this show, we get to talk about some of the most interesting stories that we get to cover. And John, I got to tell you, there is so much on my mind as we jump into this week's show, because there's so much happening. It feels like people are coming back from spring break. The pandemic is sort of, sort of in the rearview mirror, but not really. And the activity, it feels like in the economy seems to be picking up. Am I misperceiving that? Maybe a bit, at least in the startup world. I think that seems to have cooled a little bit in my view, based on the first quarter numbers. I mean, it's still a red hot environment, but I think it's cooled a little bit. You see the M&A market's not what it was. All the SPACs are like scurrying around. You're not seeing as crazy of financing deals. Like, I mean, we're st- I mean, we saw a big one this this week when Convoy, the logistics and freight shipping company, raised two hundred sixty million dollars at a three point eight billion dollar valuation. So those big deals are still getting done, but it's not with the velocity that it was last year, in my opinion. So I don't know. There is a lot going on, but. Maybe it's just in the startup world. I think it's cooled a little bit. Well, maybe folks are actually not stuck at home anymore. So they're not just sitting at their computers doing deals. You know, they're out doing real stuff. Yeah, but no, that is true. And I think this translates just to my own interactions with people. Like I'm slammed, like I'm growing out and getting lunches and coffees and I'm going out to events again. And like people are pumped to be doing that. So I think that level of activity is definitely happening. Later on, I think that we've now seen a glimpse of Amazon's fourth dreamy business, as Jeff Bezos would have put it. We're going to talk about that in the second segment. And in the third segment, I want to talk about some of the outcomes that we're seeing in this long process of figuring out what's going to happen to Paul Allen's estate. We saw some news on that front this week. We've been covering news related to that over the past few months. And I think we're reaching a point where the vision is becoming clear. So I want to talk about that with you, John. But first, let's do a little grab bag here in this first segment. You had an excellent interview that I think people should go back and listen to if they haven't already heard it with Sergei Dreisen, the CEO of Aqualon, a native of the Soviet Union who is now a tech executive here in the Seattle area who had to make the difficult decision to shut down his entire workforce in Russia, 800 people after the invasion of Ukraine. It was a fascinating interview. And I want to bring it up, John, because one of the things that some of the entrepreneurs with operations in Ukraine and Russia have been saying to us is, please help make sure these stories stay in the headlines that the stories of Ukraine are still out there, even as this war drags on. Yeah. I mean, it's really heartbreaking when you think about it and everything that's going on. Uh, I think this brought it home to many of us in the Seattle area with a company with deep roots here that also uh, 
has very strong roots in Ukraine and Russia and the rest of Europe. And just the displacement of people, when you think about it, not only the 800 people in Russia, 60% of whom have now left Russia and are working for the company in other countries in Europe, but the displacement even more tragically of the workforce in Ukraine, about 300 of the workers are now largely have moved to Western Ukraine, but it's just, it's just what a mess and what a tragedy. And I'm just in disbelief that it's happening. I highly recommend for people who have not listened to that one yet, it's the show immediately before this one in your podcast feed. It's an important listen, especially if you're listening on the weekend and you didn't get a chance to catch that during the week. I'd suggest going back and listening to that interview with Aqualon CEO, Sergey Dreisen. And John, I love the fact that that was not initially expected to be a podcast. <laughs> yeah, our, our normal podcast listeners probably uh, aren't going to enjoy the audio quality they're accustomed to here. I recorded it on my iPhone because I was just going to do, I was just doing a story. Yeah, I was just going to yeah. do a story. And then I was like, this is, we got to hear this in his words. It's much more powerful. Related to another past podcast, one of the things that we talked about with Anthony Skinner, the technology chief of iSpot a few weeks ago, that's the television and video advertising measurement company, was the fact that they don't pay attention to Netflix because Netflix doesn't have advertising. And Not yet, past, Todd. <laughs> not not yet. yet. It's coming. This, this past week. Brought some major news on that front. Netflix had an extremely difficult quarter. They lost subscribers for the first time in many years. And one of the things that Reed Hastings of Netflix said was that, hey, advertising is coming. And so I immediately thought of Anthony. I did I... too. Yeah, I saw that. And I thought the same thing. I was like, oh, iSpot is just salivating on this. Exactly. Exactly. So that's interesting. And the other thing is they're planning to crack down on the sharing of subscriptions and passwords. I know we don't want to go down a huge rabbit hole here on on Netflix, but it it is a very interesting story. I mean, I'm at this point where and and maybe it ties into our original discussion point here, Todd. We're like, dang, I want to get back out there. I'm going to events, I'm going to get coffees. Like, I don't want to sit around and watch Netflix right now. And I've actually been in the back of my mind, have been thinking about, you know, our setup at our home media setup where I think we pay for every single streaming service and we're Xfinity customers, and our monthly bill is probably, I don't know, 500 bucks a month for media and entertainment simply because I haven't gone through and, you know, cold any of it. But it's time, you know, I'm, I'm thinking like, what streaming services can I cut? I'm not going to be using this stuff. And, you know, I think Netflix is running into that headwind of how behaviors are changing. And inflation, I mean, let's talk about it. This is an expensive service and people are looking at their costs a little bit more. And also it's just, they already hit a critical mass of people. You can't keep growing your, your user base when you're in the hundreds of millions of people already using it because most of the world doesn't have the bandwidth capacity to even stream Netflix. So it's like, unless they change that issue, uh, which maybe they should set up, you know, they should partner with Starlink or something and get internet to everybody. And then they can have Netflix for free or, or no, the, the advertising based version of it. Um, and, and you can market to these folks. But I think that was a really interesting story and an interesting business story in terms of like, did they really think they were just going to keep growing at the rate they were during COVID? Like 
shouldn't they have seen the slowdown coming? And, and, and I know they forecast that it was going to be slow, but I didn't think a lot of people thought they were going to lose as many subscribers as they did. So anyway, very interesting story this week. To your point, John, I remember way back, particularly when Otto Berkus, the then technology chief of HBO in Seattle, was at the GeekWire Summit and people kept pressing him at the time on when HBO was going to go a la carte. And I think the theory back then was that people figured they would be paying less overall for their viewing in general because they would be able to pick and choose the different channels. And it's amazing how wrong that was. (laughs) Absolutely wrong. This ties into another story. Well, I'm going to preface it by saying, first off, there are way too many streaming services out there. I mean, we got Paramount Plus. We got Disney Plus. We got... Hulu, we got, you know, Netflix, we got HBO Max, we got, what am I missing? I mean, name it, Todd. I pro- I think we got it. One we didn't sign up for, though, one we didn't sign up for, and it was in the news this week, and it's a story I've been fascinated by. I'm quizzing you now. Do you know what it was? No. This was big news. This just hit this week. It is a streaming service from a news company that shut down. Have you not seen this? CNN plus. Oh, did you CNN plus? I missed this. You missed that. I posted this in Slack. I've been like tracking this closely. CNN plus this week, they pulled the plug. You're kidding me. No, they are cutting CNN plus a month in. I said it was the biggest media failure since Quibi. Isn't that the name (laughs) of that thing? Wasn't it Quibi, the uh, Jeff Katzenberg service? Yes. That was supposed to be short form. Yeah, Yeah. Meg Whitman and short form 10-minute videos. They at least lasted a few years. CNN Plus lasted a month. I I think Quibi was not not a few years. I I think it was relatively short. I think it was more than a month. They lasted more than a month. But what a disaster. And I mean, this was highly promoted and highly touted in the just pull the plug. I I guess they haven't officially pulled the plug. The service is still running, I think, through the end of the month. But nonetheless hasn't met expectations and boy, they had some high profile folks around it, but what's going to happen to Chris Wallace. I know that was actually the story I read. I was specifically reading like what happens. I mean, they hired some real top level talent to come in and work for this. That was one of the questions that I have not seen answered yet, but boy, what a mess. And I think it does speak to like, people are just saturated with streaming services. You, you know, you don't need a streaming service for every single topic in every single arena of life and people are just done paying for it too i mean or they're in my boat where it's like okay it's time to cut this back it's ridiculous by the way we were recording this on thursday afternoon this did just break literally a couple hours ago that's why i didn't know about it just so people don't think i'm completely in the dark (laughs) i've been heads down preparing actually for a couple of interviews that i wanted to mention just in this grab bag style that we're doing here i am interviewing Jeff Wilkie, the former Amazon consumer CEO, actually after we're done with this interview, because he is a native of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where the GeekWire team is going to be returning over the next couple of weeks or so to revisit our own HQ2 that we did back in 2018 as a somewhat serious spoof on Amazon's HQ2 search at the time. But also we're going to be covering AI and robotics and the Cascadia Connect AI and robotics conference, and our coverage is going to be underwritten by Cascadia Capital there. 
And I just wanted to flag that for people who follow those trends and followed our 2018 project there. That'll be some fun coverage to track on GeekWire in the weeks ahead. So Todd, will the Jeff Wilkie, that will be a podcast that people can look forward to. Is that right? I hope so. I hope so. I believe so. It'll be at least incorporated in some form of podcast. We'll see how it goes. Sometimes I like to leave those things open-ended and see how they go. And then I'm interviewing Reggie Fisame, the former Nintendo of America president, who has a new book out coming out in early May. John, I've read an advanced copy and I guess I'm under embargo on it, so I can't say a whole lot. But let me tell you, this is an excellent book that... Well, they'll love that teaser. Yeah, I don't think they're going to get upset about that. Not if you trashed it or something. Well, I know, I know. I'm just saying, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail here right now, but it gives a lot of good inside info on Nintendo of America, Nintendo based in Kyoto, Japan, the relationship between them. And there's also some really good business takeaways. I, I don't know. I've always really appreciated Reggie in the same way that I appreciate John Ledger, although without the profanity, John Ledger, the turnaround CEO at T-Mobile. I feel like when Reggie came in, at Nintendo of America, it marked a new era and brought them into somewhat of a renaissance at Nintendo in the same way that John Ledger brought T-Mobile into a renaissance. And so I get to interview Reggie and that will be a podcast coming up early May. We've got some great podcasts coming up. This is going to be exciting. And you don't have to be a gamer in order to enjoy this book. Absolutely not. No, lots of good business lessons. Although one of the interesting things was Reggie himself is a big gamer. And that's one of the reasons that he got that Nintendo job. He was big into Legend of Zelda and he tells some great anecdotes about that. Cool. Are you allowed to say what the name of the book is? I assume that's out by now. It is, of course, John, disrupting the game. Ah, Cool. (laughs) Cool. All right. Well, gosh, I'm excited to listen to these upcoming shows. And then one last thing, speaking of upcoming shows, GeekWire Awards coming up on May 12th. John, I believe that all of the tables at the event are now sold out. We are sold out. We are sold out of the event, and it is going to be great. Speaking about people wanting to get back out out there and attend events and connect and interact with folks, we certainly have seen very, very strong demand for this event. We're excited to celebrate the top innovators, scientists, entrepreneurs, business and tech leaders from across the Pacific Northwest at the GeekWire Awards on May 12th. It's going to be a fun show. You can... Of course, still tune in live for the live stream, which will be broadcasting simultaneously with the in-person event. Make sure to check that out. That's at geekwire.com slash events. Thanks to our sponsor on that event, Astound Business Solutions. Okay, coming up next, we think we've found Amazon's fourth dreamy business, as Jeff Bezos would have put it. That's right around the corner on GeekWire. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. You're listening to the GeekWire podcast. So John, back a few years ago in his annual shareholder letter, Jeff Bezos talked about dreamy businesses. He said they have four characteristics, 
One, customers love it. Two, it can grow to a very large size. Three, it has strong returns on capital. And four, it's durable in time. So the three Amazon businesses at the time that he believed met those characteristics were Marketplace, Prime, and Amazon Web Services. And this may be a stretch, I acknowledge, but I think we at least have a contender for a fourth dreamy business inside Amazon. Go ahead. Do you want me to guess? Is that what you're saying? Well, let me see. Customers love it, durable, and I missed the first two. Customers love it. It can grow to a very large size. It has strong returns on capital, and it's durable in time. Okay. I think it is shipping and logistics. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's it. I'm sorry. I would have, I would already think that's in there, but uh, no, I don't think it is. I don't think it is. But the news this week that Amazon is launching a new program called buy with prime, I think is what could escalate shipping and logistics into that realm of dreamy business. And now you could quibble with me and say it's an extension of prime. So therefore it's just building on an existing dreamy business, but I don't think that's the case. So Buy With Prime is this new program where Amazon is going to let outside merchants, direct-to-consumer sites, e-commerce sites that are not Amazon.com, draft off of Prime. They're going to be able to put a Buy With Prime button under products. It will essentially use the same checkout infrastructure, the same shipping infrastructure in many cases. And basically, it's Prime for the broader world of e-commerce. And I think this has the potential to take Amazon's existing shipping and logistics infrastructure and open it up to outside customers in the same way, in effect, that Amazon took its cloud computing infrastructure that was originally developed internally and opened it up for the rest of the world in Amazon Web Services. And that's why I would contend that this is what makes shipping and logistics this next dreamy business, essentially making Amazon compete head to head with UPS and FedEx thoughts. Well, thoughts. Uh, First one is I want you to ask Jeff Wilkie about this when you have him on the future show. I think you should do it as a podcast. So I think that's a good topic for him and maybe have him guess on not get weigh in. Like what would he choose as like the next dreamy business or two or three or four at Amazon, because I'm sure they're working on many of them. To your point, I've said this many times on the podcast. I've I've gone back years on it that I think Amazon has been positioning for years to take on UPS and FedEx. So this is not a new direction. I think they want to have deeper control of their supply chain, and they've relied on these third parties for too long. I, you'll remember, you might remember, Todd. But there was a holiday season many years ago. Remember, and they was it 2013, and like they got Amazon got hammered because they weren't able to deliver packages as quickly as they wanted, largely because they were on the backs of some of their third party providers. And I think that was a turning point for them. They're like, it was done. We're going to start owning the supply chain. And here, you know, ten years later, nearly ten years later, I think they are well ahead and are very well positioned to do just that. You know what I just did, Todd, when you were bringing this up? I looked up the market values of FedEx 
and UPS. What do you think hmm. the market values of the two are, either independently or combined? Okay, for context, Amazon's market value is what, 1.6 trillion total? 1.5 trillion, yeah. They were down. Yeah. How about that for knowing that off the top of my head? Yeah, that was good. Uh, and who knows it'll be by Saturday when this airs. But as right, of exactly. Thursday afternoon, the stock was down. It was 1.5 trillion. The combined market value of UPS and FedEx, yeah. 125 billion. Uh, a little bit more than that. So FedEx is 53 billion and UPS is 164 billion. Not not that far off though. Yeah. I mean, they're so, running the ballpark. Yeah. So you could perhaps argue- yeah, you could perhaps argue that the logistics business of Amazon is perhaps already bigger or there's more more promise of it built into the stock price uh, if you were to segment it. That might be overstating uh, how much of their business is tied into this. But, I mean, they are going after this aggressively, and I think they are well-positioned to be – the shipper of choice. At least they want that. It makes total sense when you think about it big picture. Amazon has spent the last several years, and as you said, 2013 was a real turning point. It was a real debacle in terms of their complete failure to meet customer needs, which is Amazon leadership principle number one. They've been building this infrastructure and it's sitting there and there's capacity and workers and to the extent that they can and robots. Labor, labor shortages and all that stuff. Exactly. Why wouldn't they turn around and turn that into a service? This comes with all sorts of fascinating trade-offs for independent merchants out there. You get the ease of the buy with prime button. Amazon says it's going to be sharing data with those merchants. In other words, if an Amazon prime customer uses the buy with prime button to get the order off of the third-party merchant's site, they'll say, here's their email address. You can have a direct relationship with them, which on the surface makes it seem like it's very magnanimous and fine. But think about just how much more data Amazon is going to be collecting about shopping habits across the web and then using that data to inform its own advertising algorithms, which is, I think, a possibility at least for a fifth I was going to say, yeah, that sounds like a fifth dreamy business right there. Exactly. Exactly. Which to me is fascinating from the other aspect of newspapers, community newspapers, and the fact that 50 years ago, Main Street retailers and people who were selling their stuff to their neighbors were key sources of revenue, the classifieds and the display ads. You've had Craigslist take out the classifieds, and now you've got all of these online tech giants taking out the rest of the display ads. And here comes Amazon to just you know put the nail in the coffin of the traditional revenue sources of community papers. I think this is essentially going to take the last drops of water out of the news deserts as you see Amazon's advertising business take off, but that is a whole other topic. And I think it's just kind of fascinating and disturbing at the same time, depending on your perspective. Yeah. I mean, we look at Amazon, really, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they have aspirations of two dozen dreamy businesses, all that are multi-billion dollar market value businesses under their umbrella. I mean, you think about just their media and entertainment plays as well. I mean, it's 
I mean, it's just insane when we think of, and we've talked about this so much on this show. It's crazy to think about the number of business lines that they are involved in and how dominant they are growing in some of those sectors. And yet not dominant yet. I keep thinking back. Yeah, not dominant to, yet. I know. Yeah, They would say, yeah. oh, dominant's the wrong word. We're the new entrant. We're the startup. We only have XYZ yes. market share. And yeah, I, I get it. But yes, they also have a $1.5 trillion market value. Exactly. Exactly. And you can get into all those numbers and the antitrust discussion and that whole rabbit hole that I went down with Andy Jassy during the GeekWire Summit interview. But that was his underlying point. Yeah, you might think we're big now, but really we're not that big in the scheme of things, which on the one hand is kind of interesting and modest, but on the other hand, it's a little scary when you look at the <laughs> fact that they're- We're just getting started. It's still exactly. day one. You know, Don't worry about us. We're $1.5 trillion company. You know? it's, it's okay. That's not cool, Todd. $1.5 is not cool. You know what's cool? $100 trillion. <laughs> I don't even know what the number is after a trillion. I know the math majors out there. Yes. And the whole antitrust issues and everything. And that was sort of what I homed in on with Andy Jassy was, wait a second, you're actually pretty strong in US e-commerce. You're up in the 40% range. And, and his point was they were just getting started. So yeah, that whole thing is uh, just a fascinating area to watch. Now, by the way, next week coming up, Amazon earnings on Thursday, Microsoft earnings on Tuesday. So we're going to get a new glimpse into both of these companies, the giants in our backyard. You're just salivating over there, aren't you? I love it. Those are the best weeks, best weeks. Coming up, we finally have a sense for what's going to happen with Paul Allen's vast interests and holdings in the Seattle region and beyond. You're listening to GeekWire. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. John, just this past week, we had some news come out that the Flying Heritage Collection, this eclectic collection of aviation and military artifacts housed at a museum north of Seattle, put together by Paul Allen, the Microsoft co-founder back when he was alive, will be sold reportedly to an aviation enthusiast in the Walton family, Walmart. And it struck me when I saw this news, and it was reported by Alan Boyle, our GeekWire colleague, based on some reports out there in the trade press, that we now are starting to get a complete picture, finally, many years after Paul Allen's death in October 2018, of what the future of his far-flung, I think you have to say far-flung whenever you talk about his portfolio and interests. It's the obligatory adjective. Eccentric. Eccentric. Yes. His far-flung interests. And it seems to me that Jody Allen, who's the executor of his estate, and the reason this is so fascinating in part is because it's so secretive, but, but it seems to me that there's a real focus on substance and long-term impact 
and trimming and excising of all the frivolity, all the things that really didn't matter. And frankly, all the things that Paul himself probably got the most joy out of. And I don't think that's the thing. They're not trying to take the joy out of it, but sort of his hobbies. Bye-bye, Seahawks. <laughs> yes. So we've talked about that. So <laughs> we had a great we had a great podcast with Art Teal, our former colleague at the Seattle PI, who theorizes that Jeff Bezos will eventually become the owner of the Seahawks and that the trade of Russell Wilson was setting the stage for that. And not to turn this into a plug fest, but it's about four or five episodes back. Definitely worth a listen. Yeah, this is a, this is a great show of just advertising all the <laughs> amazing guests we've had on hopefully the podcast. <laughs> hopefully it's more than that. You've got, on the other hand, AI2, the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. I got to spend a lot of time with Ornizioni and his team there recently. It is clear from what Oren says and from what board members say that AI2 is on the list of keepers. It may not be funded fully by Allen's estate and Vulcan in the future, but it's clearly a priority and it's going to be part of the portfolio in some respect. Same with the Allen Institute, brain science, cell science, and other life sciences. That clearly is another priority. You have this focus on things that have the potential to make an impact 10, 20, 30 years down the road on society in a meaningful way. And that, to me, seems to be the differentiator, the thing to look at to decide whether one of these investments and projects is going to be still part of the Allen priority. Yeah. And I'm glad you did the story on AI2. And I'm glad that Alan Boyle on our team was covering the Flying Heritage Collection, which, by the way, I absolutely loved. I went up there several times with my oh, really? with my family. Yeah, it was awesome. What it speaks to to me is, you know, not only the cutting of these things that maybe Paul Allen wasn't, you know, they were kind of on the periphery of what he did, but in many communities, if you had somebody like a Paul Allen, like, I mean you would be covering that person or in this instance, his estate as a day-to-day beat almost. I feel like it's a story that's, eh, people are not, I'm not to say they're not interested. It's just, it doesn't seem like it's getting the attention that maybe it should deserve. That's why I'm glad we're reporting on it, but it just seems like, and maybe this is to the fact that there's so much other stuff going on and we've got like Jeff Bezos and, doing whatever crazy thing he's doing, you know, getting in Twitter spats with Elon Musk and Bill Gates coming out with his talk about the pandemic. And like, I mean, we've got all this amazing amount of wealth, these, and these extraordinarily interesting, innovative companies in our backyard. At the same time, we've got like this strange and eccentric uh, portfolio of Paul Allen that is being, changed in a lot of ways. And it just seems like it doesn't get as much attention. But if uh, Paul Allen had been in Tulsa or, you know, some other location across the country, oh my gosh, it would be the number one story every single day. There'd be something new about this. So 100%. And Vulcan is probably, you know, Vulcan being the firm that Paul Allen started and they've always been a pretty hands-off private organization. They probably love the fact that they're not front and center in the media landscape for everything they're doing because they have been flying 
very low under the radar, always have, but probably even more so as they're going through this pretty huge change in their organization. In Seattle, I think people are still closely watching what happens to the Cinerama. Yes. Mopop. Absolutely. And the Living Computers Museum. The Seahawks. And the Seahawks. And the Seahawks. Absolutely. And in Portland, the Trailblazers. I think those are the five that yeah. I can think of that are sort of outstanding to be determined. And based on the trends so far, I think it's pretty clear that most, if not all of those, will be divested in some form. It seems that that's the way it's going. To your point, John, I think one of the reasons this is not in the news daily is that it's not a public entity. I think in a smaller community, you know, we're focusing a lot on Pittsburgh right now. And the big takeaway for me from our 2018 visit to Pittsburgh was just how ridiculously fortunate we are to cover such a dynamic and interesting and varied place as Seattle, to your point, John. And Pittsburgh has a lot going for it. I think if you look at cities in the Midwest and the East in particular, it's in the top tier of places where they've got tech investment and sports teams and local nonprofit institutions, healthcare. I mean, go on and on. CMU, fascinating place. Robotics, robotics were fascinating. And they've got relatively few big companies. They don't have the big anchor tenant. We are super fortunate to be able to cover what we get to cover in Seattle. Super fortunate and overloaded. That's <laughs> like there's there's a lot to keep up with. What would be interesting is to take that one point five trillion dollar market value of Amazon, and since we're going back to Pittsburgh, add up the values of every public company in Pittsburgh and see how it compares. I'm just curious. Well, Duolingo would probably be toward the top, I would imagine, in terms of tech companies. Yeah, not only, but not 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 only tech. Not only I would say every single one. Maybe maybe one of our great listeners will do the do the data data work for uh, us on that. Sure, I could do it. I can. Uh, I you got other things going. Next week. You, you got other <laughs> things you're doing. <laughs> this was a lot of fun. I liked this grab bag approach, and I'm excited about all the stuff we get to cover in the few weeks ahead. So busy times. That's it for now. Thanks for listening, everybody. Our podcast is produced by Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L. K. Caldwell. To see all of GeekWire's coverage of science, tech, business, and more from our hometown here in Seattle, go to geekwire.com and subscribe to our daily email newsletter to catch all of our headlines. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. Thanks for listening to GeekWire.